God is at work here wonderfully and it's just the beginning it's just the beginning and that good news as good as it is it's just the beginning so let me launch into what I want to talk about I'll try to make this quick got a lot of material to cover this renewal is characterized by one thing the important thing about this renewal that we're experiencing today is not the physical phenomenon the important thing is not what happens on the floor the important thing is what's happening deep inside the human heart the, the, the plate that the food is delivered on is not important the garnish is not important it may look pretty it may not that doesn't matter what's at issue here in this renewal is the fruit of what God is doing in his people's lives never get distracted by appearances either positively or negatively they're not important What's important is what we see happening in the lives of people deep within. Their heart has become inflamed for God. They are more in love with Jesus. They are set free to worship. His word becomes fresh and new and alive. They have a renewed love for their brothers and sisters and a passion to serve and be involved in God's church. They love Jesus more today than they did yesterday. And finally, we pray. We sincerely pray that this renewal turns into a, to a revival where our hearts have been so filled with them that we go out and love those that nobody else loves and we go out and get the world and drag people to him. That's where it all ought to end. These things are about fruit. This is about a deep work in the human heart. It's not about the superficial ways that it appears to be coming. You get caught up with that, you're getting caught up in the same kind of things the Pharisees got caught up in. Appearances and the outward signs. God looks to the heart. And uh, as uh, this uh, renewal in Toronto was unfolding, this is the third time I've said this today, I'm getting a little bored with it. I interviewed about 35 to 40 people as they returned to our church after having had these bizarre experiences on the floor. And I asked them a series of probing questions, the purpose of which was to determine what was happening deep within their heart. Every single one of them, although their experiences were different in how God did this, every single one of them said one thing. I came to know the love of God for me in a deep and real way. I know he loves me more now than before I went. And most of them, it's in very, very gushing language. They break down and weep about having been touched deeply by the love of the Father. This renewal, however it may appear, is a work of God loving life into his people. Loving them so much he draws them back into intimacy with them. And as that love works deep within them, their hearts are transformed and they become hungry for more. And all of those things I mentioned, the signs that this is a genuine work of God, break loose in their life. And ultimately they will be empowered and filled to go out and live Christ-like lives to bring the world to the Father.
fundamentally this renewal is about an experience of the love of God where it ends is to be revival where it begins is an experience with the love of God and I want to talk about that this weekend the message that I'm uh, bringing is about freedom it's about experiencing the love of God not as an idea or a concept but as a reality you ask every Christian do you know that God loves you every single one will say yes but if you ask him a trickier question and you say when was the last time you experienced the love of the Father you get a really different answer for many it was 15 years ago when I became a Christian something like that happened and others it will be well I don't know what you're talking about I didn't know you were supposed to experience the love of God I thought it was just an idea about, about his goodness do you understand what I'm saying the love of God's not an idea people it's an experience and I want to look at how the father intends us to live in intimate loving relationship with him I want to look at what went wrong because people when was the last time you felt that for many of you it was recently because you're being renewed but for a lot of others it's been a long time since you were held and embraced and touched by the love of the father and you know what it's supposed to be a daily thing it's your heritage as his children it's natural in his family in his home that he would be affectionate with you and that you would know his love like a gentle loving concerned passionate father I want to find out what went wrong and what he originally intended and how can we get to that place that he longs to have us in the story begins in the book of well let me start differently I don't want to give this away Jesus came teaching the kingdom of God do you know that Jesus talked about the kingdom of God more than he talked about any other subject in the Bible did you know that Jesus talks about getting saved getting saved salvation three or four times in the New Testament it's an important message getting saved isn't it but he talks about the kingdom of God multiple times more than he talks about getting saved Matthew 4.23 Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the good news of the kingdom of God and healing every disease and sickness amongst the people Matthew 4.17 from that time on Jesus began to preach repent for the kingdom of heaven is near Jesus came teaching the kingdom of God it's the number one subject that he taught Jesus prayer for us is the advancement of the kingdom of God can anybody think of the text that I'm referring to Jesus prayer for us teaching us to pray is about the advancement of the kingdom of God what is it the Lord's Prayer this then is how you should pray our Father in heaven holy is your name your kingdom come your will get done 
here right now in this place on earth just like it is in heaven that is supposed to be our prayer you know he didn't say our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name may everybody get saved amen he didn't say our father in heaven holy is your name might I be good every day amen he said pray that his kingdom comes here and now here and now on earth now here just like it is in heaven our first goal given to us by him is the establishment of the kingdom of God Matthew 6.33 but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and everything else that you need will be added unto you everything else that you need but you make your number one priority the kingdom of God am I making my point big important theme the kingdom of God it's why Jesus came to advance and establish the kingdom of God well people what's the kingdom of God do you find it a bit puzzling if you read the parables and the teachings on the kingdom of God you're in for a very confusing ride the kingdom of God is like two stones in a field the kingdom of God is like fish in the sea the kingdom of God is here and now it's amongst you oh but the kingdom of God is not yet it hasn't arrived sometimes the kingdom is now sometimes the kingdom is then sometimes the kingdom is within sometimes the kingdom is in the future sometimes it seems to be happening and sometimes it doesn't have you noticed that? it's a pretty tricky concept isn't it? what is the kingdom of God? because we need to know this this is the central theme of Jesus' life he told us to pray it he told us to make it our, our first priority he made it his first priority that's what he taught that's how his message is summed up in, in, in his life what is the kingdom of God that we're supposed to be advancing what are the characteristics of it what does it look like if we're supposed to seek it what are we advancing are you with me what does it mean well it's a really simple way of understanding all of the parables and all of the teachings on the kingdom of God people what do you need for a kingdom you need a king what else do you need you need subjects what else do you need a, a territory a realm in which what happens an area a realm in which what happens for it to be the king's kingdom he, he gets to rule thank you the kingdom of God is very simple the kingdom of God it is whatever breaks out whatever takes place when the king is getting his way in his kingdom when God's rule and reign is happening when his will is getting done on earth as he desires it and does it in heaven <clears throat> then in that place at that time amongst those people the kingdom of God is happening whenever the king's rule and reign is getting done the kingdom of God is breaking loose but what does it look like? what is God's perfect will expressed for us about? where in the Bible people do we see 
God's will getting done on earth in human life perfectly. So we, see, look, if we can find a place in the Bible where we can see God's will getting done perfectly in the lives of people or even a person, then we'll know what the kingdom of God is about and we'll have a model to say this is what we're supposed to be working for. This is what it's supposed to look like to live under God's rule and reign in relationship with him as king. We need something to look at. Where in the Bible do we see God's rule and reign perfectly expressed? How many said Jesus? How many thought Jesus? Hands. Okay. You're absolutely right. But. But. Okay. You're absolutely right. But. Here's my problem with that. He's perfect and I'm not. I get to see perfectly what that rule and reign of God looks like in his life. But I know I can't live that. Is that a little too honest? I know, I, I know that I can't be him. I know he's my goal. But I know in, in the next three seconds of trying, I'm going to fail. Is there any other place in the Bible where we see God's perfect will being done in the lives of human beings that aren't Jesus, that aren't perfect? In the lives of God's created people, a place where we can see God's will being done perfectly on earth and we can examine it and say, aha, that's what he intended for people. Now I see what the kingdom is supposed to look like. Anywhere else in the Bible? And... And nobody from Calgary gets to respond. Okay, in the garden, specifically when? Before the fall. Who said that? Bright guy. In the garden, now this is a very profound truth. Genesis is going to be a very different book for you in about 30 seconds. In the beginning, in the book of Genesis, before the fall, before there was any rebellion, before there was any sin, before there was any failure, when all we had between God and man was God's word and man's yes. God's word and man's yes. Perfect relationship between God and man. In that place, we see the way God intended life to be for people. Are you with me? Ordinary, regular not perfect people. We see the model for how God intended life with people to be. We see the characteristics of the kingdom illustrated in the book of Genesis before the fall. So let's look at them. Let's start. Do you notice how you can read a, a verse? You're reading the Bible and, and, and you, you kind of skip over verses and you don't really think about them. You ever had that experience? Maybe for 10 or 15 years you've been reading this book, but you sort of skip over things and you don't really take a long look. And then one day you kind of look at a verse and the light comes on and, and you, you, you scratch your head and you think about it and all of a sudden connections are being made and the Lord's teaching you things. Catch this little verse. This verse is about the first characteristic of the kingdom of God. This little verse is about one of the most important characteristics of the kingdom of God that he intended for humanity. And this is a huge one. 
Genesis 2.25 The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now let me me play a little game here. I want your cooperation. I'm going to say a word and I want you to pause and just think and take note of the words that pop into your head when I say this word. Don't try to force something. Don't try to get creative. Just let whatever comes to your head stick up on your computer screen and then we're going to get some feedback and we're going to see what this word means to us. And would you please be honest with me? Would you? I don't want just good things. I want the real stuff that pops into your head when you think about this word. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Naked. Just let it sink in for a minute. Naked. Naked. What are the words that come to mind when I say that? Naked. Please? Shame. What else? Ugly. What else? Sin. What else? Vulnerable. Who said vulnerable? Good on you. What else? Exposed. What else? Embarrassed. People, do you hear the words coming out? Did you hear how many of them were negative? Almost all of them were negative. Fear. Shame. Vulnerability. Embarrassment. It's not a very positive concept, is it? What about these? Childlike. Spontaneous. Without consciousness of self. Transparent. Without anything to hide. Why didn't you think of those? People, why didn't you think of those? You know what it is to be naked? Let me sum it up in a couple of words. What it really means in this passage, what it means to us to be naked is this, to be naked is this, it means to be totally known and totally vulnerable and totally transparent. And when you get that concept, and you did when I said the word, and all those negative concepts came back, didn't they? If I'm totally known, if I'm totally vulnerable, I'm ashamed, I'm fearful, I'm embarrassed, I'm ugly, I'm frightened. See, nakedness is not common to our human experience. I'm not talking about not having clothes on. I'm talking about what it is to be totally known and totally vulnerable. That is not common to our human experience today, is it? But did did you know that we all crave, at the depth of our being more than anything, to be totally known and totally vulnerable? We have a deep, deep craving to be totally known and to be totally vulnerable. It's a crazy thing because at the depth of our experience in our hearts we have this great desire and it's the one thing we fear the most. It's something we need more than anything and we fear it more than anything. And we're caught in this trap of longing to be known and to be vulnerable. 
and we just can't risk it. Why didn't we say childlike, open, free, honest, simple, accepted, loved? Why didn't we say those things? I'll tell you what. We don't say those things because every one of us firmly believes that if we were open and we were really known and we were vulnerable everybody in this room would see our insides and they would reject us. Because every single one of us knows if we've lived any time at all that we have stacked up great accumulating piles of failure and great accumulating piles of shame and great piles of sin. That's God's word for it. It's called sin. And to be naked and to be known and to be vulnerable is to be ashamed. Am I right? What is it when you combine being naked with being unashamed? There's a word I'm groping for. What would it be to be naked and unashamed? The passage here says that the man and the woman stood before God completely naked and unashamed. What is the word that captures the state of those two people before God? Thank you. Do you have my notes? How did you get that? It's innocent. It's innocence. When you combine being fully known and fully transparent without shame you were talking about the state that we describe of innocence people innocence is the first characteristic of the kingdom of God innocence is to be in relationship with the father where you are fully transparently known by him completely inside and out and he loves you and he accepts you and there is no shame within you and you experience innocence it is his first characteristic of life with him and when you got saved it was the first thing that was given back to you do you remember how clean you felt do you remember do you remember how when you get saved, you felt so cleaned and so washed. You felt like a little kid again. You woke up the next day after your salvation experience and you felt like a baby. Clean, fresh, little baby, didn't you? People, where did it go? Where did it go? If that's the first characteristic of the kingdom of God and if that's returned to you in the moment of salvation and Jesus died to give you that restored innocence, my question is, why aren't we experiencing it? If I asked you right now for an honest moment and would everybody raise their hands who is not experiencing this innocence on a daily basis, my uh, past experience in teaching this stuff would be that 80 to 90% of us would put our hands up. Anybody want to nod? Who agrees? If this is so important and it's the first characteristic of the kingdom of God, why are we not experiencing this? What has gone wrong? What has come between us and our Father that we do not see ourselves as He sees us? 
Well, guess what? Very interestingly, the rest of Genesis tells us exactly what went wrong and exactly how it gets fixed. Genesis 3, 6 through 9 is about how innocence was lost. It is about how when man steps out of an intimate, loving relationship with the Father, the first thing that disappears is innocence. You know the story. Eve is tricked into disobedience. She calls Adam into disobedience and they both now are guilty. They both now have defied God and stepped out of obedient relationship with Him. The Bible says that the effect of this, as soon as they do this, is that their eyes are opened. They now see themselves differently. And the first thing that happens to them is shame. Remember the story? What do they do? As soon as their eyes are opened and they feel shame, what's their human response? What do they do right then and there? They cover up and they run and hide. You with me? Folks, did this ever cross your mind about this passage? When they covered themselves, what part of themselves did they cover? They covered their sexual identity. They covered their manhood and their womanhood. You know, it's a little bit odd. They didn't sin sexually. Do you realize? The sin that they committed had nothing to do with their sexuality. So why did they cover their sexuality and hide? Because your identity, and this is going to become very important later in this conference, your identity as a man or as a woman is the core of who you are. When you're hurt deeply in your manhood or in your womanhood, violated in any way or assaulted in any way in the core of who you are as a man or who you are as a woman, you have been hurt to the core of your being. When you feel shame, you will feel the most shame in those areas of your sexuality, of your maleness or your femaleness. That goes to the core of who you are. And their shame went to the core of who they were. And they covered themselves and they ran and they hid. People, listen. Humanity's response to sin from that day on and up until today has always been the same. Hide, run. Cover up, hide, run. That is the human response to sin. Cover up. And we, we even call the word cover up. Right? Remember, some of you aren't as old as I am, but when Nixon was facing impeachment, they called it a cover-up. What he was in big trouble for was the cover-up. That's the human response to sin. Cover it up and run and hide. But what's the father's response to sin? What's the father's response to sin in this story? Don't look. See if your memory's fresh. What does he do? Genesis 3, 8, and 9. What does he do? He goes looking for them in the garden and he's calling out to them. Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? People, is God so dumb that he forgot where he put them? Oh, let me see. Uh, let me see. I know I created two of them. 
Yeah, I left them around here somewhere. I'm sure I left a couple of them right here in the garden. Gosh, where could they be? Perhaps behind that bush. I'd better go check. I'm getting old. I, a few years ago, I could have remembered where they were. But, and they're quick, you know. They're small, but they're fast. Not like the elephant. I can always find the elephant. They're little. Are you getting it? See, look. He doesn't have to go looking for them. He knows where they are. They're behind the tree and behind the bush. He knew that before he even left home. So he's walking through the garden. Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? What's he trying to do, people? Why is he doing this? What's he trying to do? You come to me. You come back. Please come back to me. Of your own initiative. Because you want to. Come back to me. I don't want to have to find you. I don't want to have to discover you hiding in shame. I want you to come to me. Listen, folks. After this happens, the whole rest of this book, from that moment on, is the story of God going through history, calling out, where are you? Where are you? I want my people home. I want my children back. I want my house full. Where are you? The whole rest of the Bible has only one point. I want my people back. I want my children back. Where are you? That's all it is, is working out that question and the answer to where are you. He started asking it then. He's never stopped asking it. He's not going to stop asking it until it's all over. It's the heart of the father looking for his children. The heart of the Father is to pursue and to call and to woo and to draw them back. Why? So he wants to punish them? Where are you, you little weasels? Where are you? I can hardly wait. Is, is he calling so he can punish them? He's calling so he can have restored relationship with his children. He's calling so he can restore what was before they made a mess of their lives. The tragedy of man's sin, people. I'm stepping out on a limb here. But I hazard this. I firmly believe that knowing human nature and the freedom that God gave to us, it was only a matter of minutes before we sinned. How long would you have lasted? I think they did pretty good to make it till the afternoon. I would have sold the tree. I would have harvested. I would have been selling it to the animals corrupt little me you see I don't think the tragedy of this story is that man sinned I kind of think God knew man would sin because he made him free I kind of expect that the tragedy of this story is not man's sin but what we did with it the tragedy is that we ran and we hid and we were in shame and we covered up we ran away from God not to him God's solution to your sin is not that you run away and hide it's that you run to him how many of you are parents which experience do you like more 
You've been out to dinner. You finally gave your kids a chance. They were getting a little older. You decided not to get a babysitter. So you left the precious little gifts in the house by themselves. You come home and there's a peanut butter sandwich jammed in your VCR. <laughs> right in where the tape's supposed to be. It will never play Aladdin again. Or anything. It will play peanut butter sandwich. It will fast forward to dessert. And you walk in and there are the peanut butter stains and the jelly marks across the carpet leading to the basement. And you have to go hunting for the kids and you find them in a corner cowering in the basement full of fear that you are going to beat them. Good parents that you are. Or how about this? You come home. You've left the precious little gifts for the first time and they have jammed the peanut butter sandwich into the VCR and you open the door and they're standing in the hallway and they say, Mommy and Daddy, we're, we're really sorry we did something wrong. We wrecked your VCR. We're really sorry. Please forgive us. And they throw themselves on your legs and they squeeze you and they push their cheeks against your legs and they start to cry. What are you going to do, people? Well, it's time for a beating. I was, just hope, I was just hoping you'd wreck the VCR because I need some exercise. No, your heart melts. And you forgive them. You don't feed them for a week. But you forgive them. You see, our tragedy is not that we have sinned. We have and we will. Our tragedy is what we do with it. Cover up, run and hide. And as soon as you cover up and you run and hide, you break relationship with God. You no longer have relation. You're still his child. He's going to forgive you because he's got a big mind and he already knows you did it. He's already forgiven you. But you've broken relationship with him. You're not intimate anymore. You're in shame. And the devil's just so happy. Because the one thing he just hates is people in relationship with their father. Did you know that that innocence can be returned just like that? 1 John 1 8. If we claim to be without sin, we are kidding ourselves. We are deceiving ourselves. The truth isn't in us if we pretend that we have not built up a mountain of failure. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and he will forgive us our sins and purify us. What does purify us sound like? He will purify us. He will restore. He will restore. He'll restore innocence. He will purify us from all unrighteousness. James 5.16 Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that what? So that you might get healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Listen, this is, a, this is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Each one of us has the authority in the kingdom of God under 
the unction and blessing of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to forgive sins in each other's lives. Did you know that? What you forgive on earth, I forgive in heaven. What you loose on earth, I loose in heaven. What you forgive in one another, I forgive. He has given us the most powerful, precious gift, and that is to be able to forgive one another's sins, to hear confession and pronounce complete purity and restored innocence. It's a pretty, pretty big credit card, isn't it? I want to talk now about the second characteristic of the kingdom of God. First characteristic, innocence. How it's lost and how it's found. Now I want to look at something else. Relationship. The second characteristic of the kingdom of God, and this is the one I want to spend the whole weekend on, is relationship. And let me say something that I want you to ponder on because to me it's very, very profound. Listen to this. God doesn't merely value relationship. As if, you know, relationship is a good thing. Like that we should be happy and get along with each other. Mm, this is a good thing. You know, if you're going to have church, mm, you might as well have good relationships. Okay, let's, let's put a little effort into it. Like it's one of God's values. People, God doesn't value relationship. God is relationship. How many is our God? Three. Any lights going on? People, if our God were two, if our God were just two, not three, what would, what relationship, if God were just two, what relationship that we commonly understand as people would God be like? Hmm? A marriage. If God were two, then God would be like a certain kind of relationship that we have on earth. He would be like a marriage. Two people facing each other in love. With the love going back and forth between each other like a hall of mirrors. On and on and on forever. A lover and a beloved, a lover and a beloved, back and forth. God's not two. God's three. God's three. What human relationship thing that's common to our life is that like it's like a family people God is a family God is a family see the very essence of God his very nature is a relationship and it's a relationship that looks like a family Three, loving one another. The Father pouring out love on the Son. The Holy Spirit pouring out love on the Son. Jesus saying, I can do nothing apart from my Father. And the Father saying, all glory I have laid on Him. And Jesus saying, I can't do anything but for the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit saying, I exist to glorify Jesus, to reveal his words, to make him real. Each of them is spending all his time bragging about the other. 
Don't look at me. Don't look at me. Look at him. No, 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 no. Don't look at me. Look at him. No, no. I'm here to introduce you to him. See, that's why just this is worth 25 cents, you know. It's off topic, but it's, it's worth something. That's why God's humble. All power in the universe. You know, if he changes his mind about you right now, you cease to exist. If he has a moment's doubt about you, if for one split second, if for one millionth of one second he isn't sure that you're a good idea, you're gone. You're vapor. I'm not exaggerating. It's only his consistent love that keeps the molecules in your body stuck together. He changes his mind. He has a passing thought about changing his mind about you. You're gone. This powerful God is humble. Why is he humble? Because he is a family. And in that relationship, the three are always focusing attention on the other. Isn't that wonderful? And he draws us into the triangle of his love. He adds another one and it turns into a square. He adds another one and it's five-sided. Six, seven, eight, octagon. Dectagon. Adding. Pretty soon what does it look like? It looks like a circle. And it keeps adding more and more and more. And all that happens is the circle just gets bigger. Never changes shape, just more people in the family. All enjoying the love of the Father. All passing around the love of the Father. Round and round and round forever. You see, God doesn't value relationships. God is relationship. You see, God doesn't value relationships. God is relationship. This is why if relationship is the very essence of God, this is why how we choose to love one another or not in our churches is important. Jesus said the world will know that you're mine if you love one another. Why? Because when we love one another with his love, we are revealing the very essence of God. Isn't that something? You know, we sweat and fuss about evangelism. How are we going to prove it? How are we going to prove it? How are we going to prove it? We're going to love one another. Oh, how good it is when brothers and sisters love one another. That's why what's happening here in this town, your love and unity amongst the churches is a very, very godly thing. And whether you realize it or not, the very fact that you're sitting here together is evidence of the existence and character of God. And as that love grows, and as that love becomes commonplace and not exceptional, as it becomes the rule amongst Christians, the world will look and say, I don't get it, but I want it. I don't understand it, but I need it. I don't know how they can love one another like this, but I need to be loved like that. How do you get in? Nice club. How do you get in? They'll be breaking the windows down to get in. Because the world's never seen anything like that. God's being revealed as we love one another. 
In the kingdom of God, loving relationship comes ahead of every other value. Let me demonstrate something to you from the book of Genesis. This is quite interesting. In God's perfect world, before the fall, before anything had gone wrong, people, before anything had gone wrong, God had one command for people. What was it? One thing. He only asked one thing in the garden. What was it? Don't... Don't eat of the tree which is the knowledge of good and evil. Right? Don't eat of the tree the fruit of which is the knowledge of good and evil. I don't want you to have that. I want you to have everything else. But I don't want you to have the knowledge of good and evil. I used to read this, you know, many times as you read your Bible. And every time I read this, I thought, what he's talking about is sin, that somehow the knowledge of good and evil is a bad thing. It must be sin to have the knowledge of good and evil. He doesn't want us to sin. As if the knowledge of good and evil is a bad thing. How many of you thought that? must be that the knowledge of good and evil is a bad thing. Right? Then I read this verse. After Adam and Eve had acquired the knowledge of good and evil, God said, now that they have this, they have become like one of us. See, the knowledge of good and evil was not a bad thing. The knowledge of good and evil was an attribute of God and the heavenly host. The knowledge of good and evil was a good thing. Not man to have it. If it's a good thing, why didn't God want man to have the knowledge of good and evil? In fact, it's worse than that. It's the only thing that he didn't want man to have. At this verse, after Adam and Eve had acquired the knowledge of good and evil, God said, now that they have this, they have become like one of us. See, the knowledge of good and evil was not a bad thing. The knowledge of good and evil was an attribute of God and the heavenly host. The knowledge of good and evil was a good thing. So why didn't he want man to have it? If it's a good thing, why didn't God want man to have the knowledge of good and evil? In fact, it's worse than that. It's the only thing that he didn't want man to have. What's the problem? If it's a good thing and it's something that's part of the character of God, why doesn't God want us to have the knowledge of good and evil? That's not it. Well, you're getting close. Let me ask you this question. You're getting really close. Let me ask you this question. What is in contemporary terms the knowledge of good and evil what is it to look at life everything that you do all the time to see whether it's right or wrong what do we call the pursuit of figuring out right and wrong what else 
Yeah, but when I went to school, I took a lot of philosophy. We had a name for it in philosophy. The, the, the study of right and wrong. Huh? It's ethics. It's ethics. It's morality. The knowledge of good and evil is about examining life and looking at your life and deciding what's right and what's wrong all the time. It's about being a moral being. It's about having a moral nature. It's about having a conscience and about looking and watching and examining your life in terms of the rightness or the wrongness of all of the decisions that you make. Are you with me? To have the knowledge of good and evil is to be a moral being. And God is a moral being. And God is saying right here, before the fall, in His perfect kingdom, in His perfect will for us, I don't want you to be a moral being. I do not want you being a moral being. Don't take that fruit. Don't acquire that characteristic. Stay clear of it. It's the only thing I don't want for you. Why? You got it. To be a moral being, to be a moralist, and to live in a moral world is to spend your time examining all of your behavior to, discern, to determine what's right and what's wrong. Well, isn't that what being a Christian is all about? Isn't it? That's what I was taught it was all about when I was a child. It's about being good and avoiding being bad and knowing the difference and watching your behavior and struggling to get it right. Always being concerned with right and wrong. Do you see the problem in it? Let me ask a question. When you live in a moral world, where is your gaze? What are you looking at? Always, continually. Me, me, me. Folks, listen to this. There's two inevitable outcomes. Only two inevitable outcomes for a life focused on attention to your behavior and your actions. Two possible conclusions. For those that think they're doing quite well. Yes, I'm doing well. I'm not making mistakes. I've got it together. Yes, I am very good. What do they fall into? Pride and self-righteousness, right? Or, closer to the rest of us, for those who see themselves clearly the way they really are, they know they're not making it. They know they're not doing it very well. They see a big heap of failure every day. And you know what? It's really bad because every day it gets a little bigger. Going to bed at night isn't such a treat because there's more trouble and more sin and more failure than there was in the morning. And what you have to look forward to tomorrow is that the pile will be a little bigger. And someday if you're really lucky, you get to die. <laughs> what do they fall into? Guilt. 
discouragement, condemnation and self-hate. Ultimately, lethargy and apathy and they give up. They become cynical about their Christian life. They just don't care to even try anymore because they know it's pointless. There's no hope. What do those two outcomes have in common? The first and the second. Both of them. Self-righteousness, self-hate. What's the common denominator? Self. You see, to be a moral being and to spend the focus of your life on whether you're doing right or whether you're doing wrong has one common failure no matter what. The focus of your life is you. Your gaze has gone downward from Him to you. And the minute your gaze falls from Him to you, you are finished. Your Christian life is now on the skids. Now some of you find this really hard to accept because you've been raised as I was that the central precept of being a Christian was getting your act down right and being good. And what I'm telling you is driving you crazy inside. The logic of it is irrefutable. I'm teaching it from the text so you're having a really miserable time. It's driving you crazy inside. It's pressing all of your buttons. Part of you knows I'm right and the other part is horrified. You know what you're horrified by? Freedom. You're petrified by freedom. Because if what I'm saying is true, God has a better way. And it's real scary. What would it, listen to me folks, what would it be like not to have to do that? What would it be like not to have to look at your life all the time worrying about whether you're right or whether you're wrong? What would it be like to go through life day after day gazing at Jesus and being in love with him and doing what comes naturally out of that love affair? That would be great. Wouldn't that be something? Too bad it's not possible. I'm I'm here to tell you that it is. I'm not here to tell you that it's vaguely possible. I'm here to tell you that it is the heritage, the legacy, the way God designed it, the way it's supposed to be from day one. It's here in the text, people. Naked, unashamed, in love with the Father, not intended that you be moral beings. Now, I'm not saying by that that you just say, oh, who cares, let's just go out and do something rotten. But if you were gazing at Jesus and you were falling in love with Him and it is impossible to gaze at Him, folks, without falling in love with Him. It is not humanly possible to gaze at Him for any length of time and not fall in love with Him. If you are gazing at Him, you are falling in love with Him and if you are falling in love with Him, something is happening within you. Your heart is responding to Him. You are desiring to please Him and you're not even conscious of it. The love of Jesus transforms us from glory to glory as we gaze at Him. And the love of God in that loving relationship with Him transforms us from the inside out and we no longer desire to do wrong things. The idea of doing wrong things sickens us. Let me prove this. Can you possibly imagine having been filled with the love of God? Filled with the love of God and standing up and saying, I'm so full of the love of God, I just want to go out and steal something. I have been so loved by God. He has witnessed to me that I am His precious child. I never knew what this was like. I want to kill someone. Let's go do it. Stupid, isn't it? 
idiotic, bizarre that we could ever think that the love of God transforming the human, human heart could bring forth something bad. Doesn't it brings forth holiness? Because holiness is a work of the Holy Spirit within the person that transformed their life from the inside out with the love of the Father. Now, am I arguing for an ethics-free life? Am I saying, ah, who cares? You know, just do whatever. No. What I'm saying is this. We do live in an ethical world. There is right and wrong. It does matter. But listen, folks. In the kingdom of God, your ethics comes out of your relationship of love with the Father and not vice versa. You are a Christian not because you're good. If you're good at all, it's because you're a Christian. Do you understand? Your attachment to Jesus, the power of God's love working in you in that love relationship will make you good. But you will never get that relationship by trying to be good. The goodness of God's love comes first and the response is a holy life. You are not a Christian because you're good. If, it's, if you're good at all, it's because you're a Christian. Do you understand? St. Augustine, one of the great fathers of the faith, whose teaching and theology piloted the church through the Middle Ages and the Dark Era, he is one of the great intellects of the, uh, of the Christian church, was asked to sum up ethics. You know what he said? Love God and do what you like. Love God and do what you like. Why? Because if you are in love with God and you are in close, intimate relationship with Him, people, you will not want to do wrong. You will crave ways to say thank you. You will crave ways to please Him. And when you do sin, it will hurt you as much as it hurts him. Why? Because it hurts the relationship. Are you with me? Imagine for a moment. Husband and wife are having a rough time in the marriage. It's not going too well. Husband says, My pastor's mad at me. My friends think I'm a jerk. I'd better change myself. I'd better be a better husband. I know what I'll do. I'll go to the bookstore and get 49 ways to be a good husband. And I'll read it and I'll do what the book says. I don't really love my wife, but I'm tired of the heat at home. So I'll just get the book and I'll do what the book says. So he scurries down there and he gets the book and he starts to read it. On page 36 it says, Women are suckers for flowers. Women think flowers say I love you. Get her some roses, bring it home and hand it to her and say I love you. So he thinks, that's the way to be a good husband. I've read the book, now I know how it works. So he runs to the flower shop and he gets a dozen roses and he goes home and he sticks them behind his back and he walks up to the front door and he opens it and she's there to greet him and he hands her the flowers and he says, Honey, I love you. And she melts with joy. And her big smile breaks out and she says, Oh, thank you. Whatever prompted you to do that? And he looks at her and says, Page 36.
wilt. Whole thing didn't mean a thing, did it? Didn't mean a thing, did it? As soon as he says page 36, you might as well just trash the roses. Why? Didn't come out of relationship. Wasn't real. Came out of performance. Came out of a standard, maybe. Came out of an idea. It didn't come out of the heart. Wasn't real. The only good works that are worth doing are the good works that come out of a heart that has been touched by the love of God. Those then are the works of God. Everything else is the flesh. Let's just uh, be still for a few minutes. We're going to have a ministry time and apply this teaching. And I want to wait on the Lord and see what he wants to do. I have an idea, but I need to wait and see if it's what he wants to do. So if we could just be still for a minute. I think the two key things that the Lord wants to do in our ministry time tonight the two words that are really uh, huge are shame three words shame restored innocence which is about forgiveness and getting off the treadmill getting out from under religious bondage to performance and beginning to step into his arms in relationship. Now, three key concepts. Shame. Many of you are bound by shame. You carry it with you every day. When you get up and when you go to bed, it's there and it's there all day long. There are things that you do not believe you can be forgiven for. There are things you've never told anybody that you've done. There are things that you've told people you've done. There's things you've prayed to God to get forgiveness for over and over and over and over again. And you have not felt released. And you live in shame for those things. Some of you have just a general sense of shame that just hangs over you. You're under accusation by the enemy almost all the time. When I was talking about innocence, you can't even remember what it felt like to be innocent. And you want that back. You want to get that shame off your back. You want to know that you're loved and forgiven. And for others, you recognized that you have been striving and struggling under the weight of performance to get your Christian life right so you could be lovable and acceptable to God. And it's killing you. And you're not winning. The treadmill's getting steeper and it's moving faster and you're panting harder and you just wish it would stop. And you just got to get off. And when I started to talk about relationship, not religion, and when I started to talk about that freedom in his love and not living with that constant focus on your behavior, your heart just leapt inside and you thought, oh, if only I could have that. God, what a relief that would be. 
Many of you thought that and felt that. You just want that so badly. I want to invite you to come for prayer. And uh, I'm going to ask the ministry team to come up now, if you would, please. All the ministry team people, would you please come up here and stand right across the front of the stage facing that way. And don't delay. Everybody. And there's no options here, people. If you're on the ministry team, you, you come forward. It's important. Good, we've got lots. Okay. Some of your buttons were pressed about shame. Some of your buttons were pressed about restored innocence. And some of your buttons were pressed about getting off the treadmill of this continual moral life of worrying about your rights and wrongs and you just want to get back to a relationship with the Father. And you need a beginning. I want to invite you to come forward. Men to men and women to women and hook up with these people. Now, this is really important. And this is a very, very heavy thing that I'm about to say. But I want to make this invitation to you because I've seen the fruit of this over and over and over again. I've seen the fruit of this. I can guarantee certain things are going to happen if you buy in. For those that are carrying shame and guilt over something that you've never been able to talk about, you've never been able to unburden, and you've prayed to God a dozen, maybe a hundred times, but you've never sensed that you're forgiven. One of the reasons why you may not have sensed your forgiveness is that God has given to his people the power to forgive sin. He has mitigated one of his functions to his body. If you confess your sins to one another, you will be healed. And maybe it's one of those things where you need to hear a human being with skin on look into your eyes and look into your face and say, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I pronounce you forgiven for that sin. There are some things that God will not do directly because he wants his body to do it. He wants his church to do it. He's given his body on earth, his authority to do these things. And sometimes you need to hear it from a person. And these people right now are sworn to confidentiality. You people, if you hear somebody's confession and you repeat that confession, you are in great sin. And you have violated them and you've violated God. You hear someone's confession, you never speak it again to anybody else till the day you die. That's a holy thing. And I charge you with that. But God gave his people the authority to forgive sins. And if you're sitting here tonight and you're badgered by something that has been on you for a long, long time and you've just got to get it off and your heart is beating right now and it's driving you crazy and you'd like to run, I offer you the opportunity and invite you to come and find someone that you don't know and will probably not see again and speak into them what you need to say and let them pronounce forgiveness over you. Secondly, if you have this general sense of shame being outside of the Father's love and you just desperately need to hear that you're loved and forgiven and to have that blessing released to you, these people are authorized by God right now to do that. 
And thirdly, if you've been on that treadmill and you can't stand it and you need to have that power of performance living and legalism and striving broken over you so that you can begin to crawl into the Father's arms and relate to Him as a loving Father, you can make that beginning tonight and these people will pray for you. So if any of those things strike you and you want prayer, I invite you to come forward and get prayer now. Okay? And we're just going to wait while you get all sweaty and hot and bothered and convicted and your heart is beating and you're shaking a little and life is horrible. We're just going to let the heat go up in the room. You might want to go somewhere private to pray. Once you guys, as you link up, once you go somewhere where you can talk and where you can pray for each other without, uh, without being overly public about it. So anyone that wants prayer on any of these issues, you can come forward now. You guys go somewhere where you can be alone as you link up. Ministry team, don't go away. People will be coming to you. Just just be patient. There's, there's a prayer being answered. That's what freedom sounds like. That person is not suffering from shame. No, no, no. I have a prophetic gift and I'm just certain that that person is not suffering from shame. How did I know that? I... You can let that come. You can let that come. Let the joy come. Let the liberty and the freedom and the innocence and the joy of that innocence come. Lord, bless them. Release your spirit, Lord. Bless them, Lord.